0: Go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. God, our heavenly Father, wants his house to be filled. That is God's desire that heaven itself would be overflowing with people from every tribe and nation and language scattering the face of the earth. It is God, our Heavenly Father's, desire that His church would be overflowing with people. Good people, bad people, wise people, foolish people, all kinds of people. It is God, our Heavenly Father's, desire that there be standing room only in this sanctuary and in every faithful sanctuary throughout the land. Why then is it not the case? Why then is it not so? The very simple answer that our Lord Jesus gives is that the invitation goes out And the excuses come in. We can think about it by way of the law, which is valid. What do we owe our Creator? We're not our own. We belong to Him. Everything we have comes from Him. What do we owe Him? Absolutely everything we have and are. But why then are we willing to return so little? Why then even does our flesh, when we want to be at church on a Sunday morning, resist and resist so violently? Jesus sits at a meal of Pharisees. It's a hostile meal. If you've ever sat in a hostile meal, it's not a fun place to be. You're not even really tasting your food. In the course of their conversation, one of the men says, blessed are those who, and here's the key to understanding what's going on, who will, future tense, eat bread in the kingdom of God. There's an implicit rejection that Christ, sitting right in front of them, is in fact the king the king who has come, and the kingdom with him, and he is bringing the feast. The one who makes the statement intentionally overlooks this. Not now, but later. Amongst the Jews, it was also controversial, and had been for some centuries, as to who would be included in the great feast of the kingdom of God. Perhaps a minority believed that all who were faithful would indeed come. But it seems to be much more popular that others said just the Jews would be allowed in. Still others, like the Pharisees with whom Jesus was dining, said not even all the Jews, just those of us who are really awesome. So Jesus tells this parable of a great man, who sends out invitations to his banquet. Of course, we're living in times where there's not refrigeration, so the invitation goes out. Frequently, RSVPs would be sent back, but if it was an important enough person and they gave you an invitation, you saved the date. Once all the animals were slaughtered and barbecued, the wine was mixed, everything was prepared, Then the master would send out his servants to say, everything's ready, the day has arrived, it's time for you to come. Three excuses are given in the parable that Jesus tells. The first man says, I've bought a field and now I need to go examine it. Is that what you do? Just buy a random chunk of land and then go up and hope it's worth the money you paid? Of course not. Nobody does that, especially not in that area where farming is notoriously difficult. It's a lame excuse. It's an intentionally lame excuse. The next is like it. I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I've got to go investigate them. It's like saying I bought a used combine tractor for $250,000, and I've got to go check it out and see if it's any good. That's not what you do. You look at it ahead of time. Again, it's a lame excuse, and intentionally so. And the third is worst of all. I've gotten married, so I can't come. What does that have to do with anything? Bring your wife. The implication is a rather adult implication as to what he might be doing instead of going to the banquet. What's with the intentional insults? They are indeed heaping scorn upon the one who invited them. They're doing so knowingly and willingly. And what's more, the food that he has prepared is all going to go to waste. The great sacrifice of animals, the mixing of wine, all the expense, all the effort, all the labor, all the cost, they're saying, let it rot. Let it all be for a waste. We're not coming. Our Lord makes the connection between the Jewish people who received him not, who rejected him, who rejected his own costly sacrifice for them, who would have no part in his feast. You can see then why the man in the parable becomes angry. You'd become angry too. Anyone would become angry at the insult, the injustice, the waste. But contrary to popular opinion, you can be angry and not sin. And that indeed is what this man does. He becomes angry, but then says, you know what? I'm not going to let all of this sacrifice go to waste. And he tells his servant to go out into the streets and lanes of the city, that's the key, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The outcasts of the house of Israel. Implied here, too, is the first century view that if you were poor, crippled, blind, or lame, that it must be because of some sin that you had committed that God had punished you. With this affliction. So these are the outcasts, also in a moral sense. These are the sinners, at least in the eyes of those like the Pharisees. The servant does as he's commanded, and these enter the banquet hall completely unworthy. There's still room. Servant reports this to his master, and the master says, Now go outside the city to the highways and hedges, which is strange language. Usually when that kind of phraseology is used, it's places where robbers, prostitutes, and 'er ne'er-do-wells hang out. Go out and compel them to come in. And the servant does. And the house of God is filled. Filled to the brim with sinners. And God wouldn't have it any other way. In fact, even written into creation itself is a reflection of this great banquet, this great feast of God. That's why in your house, your dining room table is the most important place, or at least one of two. There at that dining room table, as you gather, it is a place where you eat, where you receive bodily life, where you share in the love of a family, where you wrestle through things as a family, where a kind of earthly left-hand kingdom, civil sphere, healing, and joy can take place. A microcosm, a foretaste, and encouragement to you fathers on Father's Day to make sure everyone's gathered around your table. You're the host. And great encouragement to you women who cook, (laughs) because it's more than just calories. It's more than just good-tasting food. It's a connection and an occasion for connection. It's a feast of love. And every meal is an opportunity, even as our mealtime prayers remind us, to reflect on the fact that this very food we're eating, the very people we have gathered around the table, are gifts to us from God. And it is the same God who envisions a great family reunion where we are all gathered around him in perfect peace, love, and harmony, restored in his kingdom forever. So if you want to be rebellious, don't go burn down a city. Have a family meal and revel in the rebellious love of our God who is making all things new. Now, one thing hidden to our eyes in the parable that Jesus tells lies underneath that word banquet. It's the Greek word diipnon, which would be more literally translated as supper. What is this great supper that Jesus comes to bring? It is indeed the new covenant the New Testament itself. If you ask Jesus, what is the New Testament, and then you go through your Bible and you look at all the red letters, there's only one place where he tells you what the New Testament is. It's this table. Specifically, it's his cup. Here at this table, at this great feast, he gives you bread, that is his body, wine that is his blood. Why would we think such a strange thing that it is in fact his body and his blood? Well, because he says so. The sacrifice of his body and his blood on the cross once and for all are here distributed to you. This is my body, he says. This is my blood given and shed for you. And why do we receive that? Again, because he says, for you, for the forgiveness of sins. When you come to this table, unlike your dining room table where it's food for bodily life, here you receive food for eternal life. In the same way that the father in the house exchanges his life his labor, his sweat, sometimes his blood, for food on the table, for bodily life. So here our Lord Jesus expends his sweat, lays down his body, sheds his blood, that we might have life. We partake of his very life laid down for us. In other words then, those who are invited to this feast of forgiveness are only those who count themselves to be sinners in need of that forgiveness, in need of the healing that God gives here in part, but there fully. In our Old Testament lesson, there's this line, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. I would venture to bet that every Christian who has been invited and drawn here this day has, in one way, shape, or form, been reproved this past week. You may have been reproved by someone you know and love, or reproved by someone in a position of authority, or you may have been reproved by your own conscience. You have been reproved, not that you would be a scoffer, not that you would hate the reproof, but as one who is wise, that you will love the reproof and the correction, understanding that it comes from your heavenly Father himself. And that as a heavenly father, he reproves you because he loves you and he brings you here so that you know that you are still his, that you are still forgiven, that you are still loved. Let us then be joyful, be filled with the love of our Savior Jesus. And just as the master sends out his servant, let us also go out and compel others to come in that the house of our God and Father might be full. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.